You know, one of my favorite things about God is that he does unexpected things. And he shows up in unexpected ways. And he does things that surprise us. And what would be interesting about that, about God, is that it makes him other than us. Like, if we can't always predict who God is and what God does, that makes him something altogether other, altogether different than we are. Now, some of us think that that unexpected thing that God's going to do is going to be bad. But what if God actually is so good? And what if what he does in unexpected ways is even more like marvelous and healing and whole than we can even really expect or, or desire? It's like more than that. So... I just had to say, I don't know where that came from. I guess that's what God wanted to say this morning. So you guys can go if you want. Um, just kidding. We're going we're to get started this morning. My name's Nicole. I'm part of the team here at Hill City. And I'm really excited about this series. I think it's a chance for us to think deeply together. And I think there's kind of two, two camps that we might be in right now. One, one camp is we just like, we feel really sold out for the Lord. Like we've experienced something in our life. We feel really solid in our faith. And we almost, in a lot of ways, we can kind of take God for granted. Like we, we're just able to like name these things about God. It's so easy. We're just like, we've been in church our whole life. We've been hearing these things our whole life. And so in some ways it's like, why are we talking about God on this level? Because I already know that, right? That can be a camp that we can just fall into. Then there's this other camp where we're actually like secretly a little bit worried or wondering about some things and we don't know if it's a safe place to come and do that and we don't like the feeling that it creates when we start to ask those questions and so we may avoid or we may not tell people others might not know that that's our experience with God and I want you to know that all of that is welcome here today and what we're going to do is we're going to try to level set around some of those things that we see in our world and that God tells us about himself we're going to start from that place so this is kind of a two-part week um, we're going to get into. So a couple of, couple of questions we're going to leave open that we're going to try to answer together next week. So if you look at the news, if you're on your social media feed, depending on what you listen to, you know, in the, in the car, you may really feel like we're in like a God crisis right now in our country, for sure. <laughs> I really appreciate your full laugh about that. So here's what we know about that. Okay. So this is something that's studied. So what we know is that generally belief in God is down in our country. Church attendance is down. Um, the vast majority of Americans still say they believe in God, but the biggest change, percentage change, was actually in young people, um, down to 60, 68% of young people between the ages of 18 and 29 believe in the existence of God. But there's these other studies that also go on that have been these longitudinal studies about people who have faith, people who are devout in their faith. And they have these other studies that show that actually having a strong belief, coming to church weekly, and having close friendships in church create a life with less anxiety, less depression, and overall more personal satisfaction. Not just believing in God, but ordering your life around that belief, taking action on that belief, is so good for you on every single level. In terms of being very satisfied with life, weekly church attendance creates a stronger satisfaction of life than making $100,000 or more in household income. It's more important to come to church every week than to actually make money, as far as happiness goes. So the mighty dollar can't even compete with a belief in God. But there's this tension here, right? So we feel like there's this God crisis in our world. Belief is down, attendance is down. There's other things that say, man, but one of the best things you can do 
in life, outside of even who we know God to be, if we were just gonna look at what we can see as humans, we can actually measure that an experience of faith, an experience of weekly attendance in church, it creates incredible personal satisfaction. So we've got these people, a lot of us, where we're like, okay, I believe in God, but then when they are pressed a little further to talk about what you believe in God, I think we actually see attention here. Look at this, look at this chart from, from this study. I know that's a little bit small, so I'll read it to you. But it says, um, do you believe in God? And then if you do, do you believe God hears your prayers? God hears your prayers and can intervene on your behalf? Or God does neither of these? So just take that in. This is the way they wanted to write the question. Okay, do you believe there's a God who hears your prayers? Okay, so that first one was like 42% of adults believe there's a God who hears your prayers. But then when asked, do you believe there's a God who hears your prayer and would intervene for you? Only 28% of people who believe in God believe that. And then there's the third one that's like, God doesn't hear prayers at all. So now there's a God out there who doesn't hear prayer at all. There's a God out there who hears my prayers, but something about that God means he can't like do anything about it. And then there's like a smaller, you know, a minority of people within that vast amount of people, which is almost 80% of people in America say they believe in God. Within that, there's like this very small amount that actually believe that God can hear prayers and intervene. So I'm not sure if we have a God crisis or if we have a who is God crisis. It seems more like there's a sense that there's something out there, but maybe this something out there, we can't quite reconcile like, who he is or who it is and what this thing can do in our life. Maybe there's less of a problem with believing in a God and more of a question of who is this God anyway. When I put this word God up here, I just want you to do a little one word association real quick. Like first thing that comes to mind, when you, when you hear God, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Anyone brave enough to shout it out? Love, okay. Jesus, Father, oh, you guys are very, you're very brave, I love this. What was that? Father, yeah, yep. Sovereign, thank you. Sovereign, yes. We did a little one word association with the staff around the qualities and aspects. What's the first thing you think of when you hear God? And we talked about God being redeeming, God being compassionate, God being faithful, God being a restorer, God being a creator. If you've been in church for a long time, you might have a lot of words for who God is. But most all of us, when we think about what's happening for us, so we might have a deep sense of that, right? But when we see what's happening in our world and in our culture, and we think about that question, does God hear prayers and do nothing? Does God hear prayers and he can do something? Does God not even hear prayers? We know that there's like this, who is this God really? And I think that if we were gonna address one of the main tensions, this would be the tension that the staff team came up with. If God is so blank, why does blank happen? If God is so loving, why is there evil in the world? If God is so sovereign, why isn't he operating in my life? If God calls himself a father, why is my father such a terrible person? I don't like that association. We enter into this tension, if we're gonna be honest, where we're like, okay, yeah, like if God is so, then why is it this way? And this is how we really become people who study God. It's when we actually enter into the tension and we address the tension. If God is so merciful, why do I not experience him? If God is so present, how do I have that in my life? 
If God is so loving, why is there like a wrathful, like who is this God of the Old Testament? All of those questions, right, come to bear. This is part of the tension that we enter into. And I think that what I wanna say is that the tension is good. The tension is good. Because if God is small and we can just figure all of it out and we can just rattle off the answers to all these questions, then, then he's not other than us. There's no mystery there. There's no, there's no sense of like what is real here in this world. And guys, we have to be people who know how to enter into real things because we're real humans who have weaknesses and strengths, who have suffering, right? Suffering is probably the most common human experience there is. So if we as believers don't have a way to kind of talk about if God is so blank, then why does blank happen? I think we have a responsibility really to be able to engage that question deeply, to wrestle with it, to have some tension with it in our own lives in a way that can bear witness to who God is. So over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna talk about, okay, what, who is God and what is this thing? And if we were gonna talk about that prayer study for just one more moment, I think this is the argument against the existence of God. There's kind of two ways that this goes. If God is all good, then he must not be powerful because he wouldn't allow evil and suffering in the world. But if God is all powerful, he must not be good because then he would know about all this evil and not act. And this is where people trash their faith completely. Because they can't reconcile, if God is so good, he can't be powerful, or he wouldn't let it be this way. And if God is powerful, then he can't be good, or he wouldn't let it be this way. So we're gonna get a little deeper into that, particularly next week, but that's the kind of tension that we're addressing, because the nature of God is both good and powerful. What we know about God, what God's revealed to himself to us is that the nature of who God is, is both good and powerful. It's what makes God, God and not us. But we do have to wrestle through how God reveals himself to us and how we sort of handle the mystery of suffering in the midst of how God reveals himself to us. So theologians call this like vast understanding, perhaps like what this main belief that Americans have this 80% of Americans kind of belief in God. We're gonna start there. Theologians call that common grace. It's the way that God's revealed himself just in the world. Um, it's like my friend who is not a believer, she would probably call herself an agnostic and we were talking once and she said, you know, once I had children, when I had a baby is when I said, how could you not believe that God exists? It's like that kind of faith, right? It's this sense of like, God is the one who, you know, he has a favorable attitude towards us. It says in Psalm that the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. He gives us provision, right? He gives us creation. He shows kindness by allowing us to be sustained in this world. If we think about how intricate nature is, everything about what allows our life to be sustained on this planet, that would be called common grace. So I think there's just a lot of people out there who are like, there must be like a benevolent thing. And like, I believe in that thing. But then again, when you drill down and you ask, well, does he know you? Is he personal, right? That's really the question about prayer. Is God personal? Is God powerful? That's when it starts to fall apart a little bit. So where I want us to start is to ask ourselves the question, okay, how does God reveal himself? Let's start there. How does God choose 
to reveal himself. How does he want to be known in scripture? And we're going to start and we're going to stay in Exodus in the next couple of weeks. So if you um, have a Bible or you want to turn to this passage, it'll be up on the screen as well. We're going to be in Exodus chapter three. I absolutely love this passage. It's fascinating. And just a little disclaimer about this story. The story of Moses um, is a long one, right? It goes on for a long time. And what we see in the story of Moses that we can't do in just two weeks is that he actually has progressive revelation about God. If you want to study how God interacts with us personally, study, the, study Moses, study his life. Because in the life of Moses, there's this long understanding of who God is. There's ups and downs, there's frustration. There's all kinds of things that happen in Moses' life as he begins to walk with God that really show us how God wants to reveal himself. There's this ongoing and growing revelation that happens. But we're going to start kind of in this beginning interaction that we see with Moses. So Moses, little backstory in case you haven't watched a Disney movie in a while. Moses, remember, is the one whose mom puts him in the reeds, like the basket, and he floats down the river because they had sort of, they had decreed all boys needed to be killed, so she was trying to save her baby, and he goes into Pharaoh's household. It really is the stuff of movies, right? And so he's raised as an Egyptian, Moses, and in this moment, he still, he knows about his heritage. He knows that he's a Hebrew, and he sees the, the Hebrews were enslaved at the time, and at one point, he sees two, two, uh, a Hebrew being mistreated by an Egyptian, and he actually she kills the Egyptian. He like has this moment where he's like his passion and his purpose comes out. He doesn't want to see his people oppressed, but then he's found out. And so he has to flee the kingdom. So after being raised basically as a prince in Pharaoh's household, he's now in the wilderness. And this is what I love about the Bible. We're going to get to in just a second. Guys, it was 40 years like when we hear stories like this, we're like, and then next month, God spoke to him. And it's like, no, it was 40 years. Anybody ever wait on God? Anyone ever waiting 40 years? Is anyone here 40? Like, it's like a lifetime, you know? And so that's what happened. I mean, this, he has this whole big life. He's like life in the palace, life with Pharaoh. He's, he thinks he's done a good thing, right? And he, he's actually rejected and ejected from the kingdom. And then he's tending sheep in the flock of Jethro, who's his father-in-law, for 40 years. And then we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The story goes on, and the Lord says, I have heard my people cry out in Egypt, and I am sending you to release them. And in verse 11, we pick up the conversation, and Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I will be with you. The conversation goes on. And Moses says to God, who am I to say has sent me? 
And in verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God is a good and powerful God. And I wanna talk about the good part of God's nature today that is combined with the powerful part, okay? So these two things go together, but we're gonna split them out and talk about these pieces. And the first thing is the idea that God is good. What do we see about the goodness of God in this passage? I think we've got a couple things we can see. The first one is this. God presents himself as humble. Okay, God could have set the whole mountain on fire to just sort of say, I'm here, right? And we, we know in scripture that it says that the angel of the Lord was in the bush, but Moses' experience of the bush was what? He just saw a little something happening. He saw that there was this little kindling, this little fire happening, and he was like, I'm gonna go see what that's all about. God presented himself to Moses in a humble and small way. And anytime we see something in scripture and we wonder to ourselves, is this who God is? We look for other examples of God doing the same thing. And God does this again and again and again in scripture. God presents himself as humble. This is mind-blowing because why would a majestic, sovereign, all-powerful God, instead of showing up by lighting the whole mountain on fire or giving Moses this massive vision, he shows up in this tiny little way. And he does it again and again in scripture. The prophet Elijah was on his, like the end of his rope, so tired of the work he was doing in ministry, he flees from what was happening. And it says that God didn't come to him in the earthquake and God didn't come to him in a fire. This is in 1 Kings 19, but God came in a small whisper. Think about how Jesus shows up with people. I love the story of Jesus who just takes a bypass so he can be at a well in Samaria and there's a Samaritan woman at the well. And the first thing Jesus says to her is like, hey, can I have a drink? Those are very humble approaches. Now, why would God do that? I don't know exactly why God would do that, but here's what I do know. When God humbles himself that way, he actually gives us agency. He says to us, you have the freedom to be curious or not. You have the freedom to engage with me or not. Now, there will come a time where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But we're in this liminal space, this in-between space where it appears that God actually humbles himself in a way that gives us the opportunity to engage or not. And I find this a very convicting part of God's character. To think that God would be having little burning bush experiences for all of us all the time, that he would be so good that he would do that that he would allow us to engage with him in small ways again and again and again all through our week. And the question is, am I curious enough? Am I interested enough? Do I desire to enter into the mystery of who God is? We know that God is humble and not only is God humble, God is patient. God waits for Moses to come over and look. It says in the passage that the angel of the Lord was already in the bush, right? It's already happening. And it was like, I wonder, what, like what if Moses didn't care, didn't walk by? Neither God in his sovereignty knew that Moses was his man, but he actually waits for Moses to come over and look. It's this humble, gentle, patient approach. And I think that there's something about that that is so powerful for us to realize, wait, in the waiting, and in the seeking, and in the places where I don't think God is showing up, am I actually interested enough 
to, am I curious enough to wonder where he is, to desire to seek him out? Because he waits for Moses to want to go over and look. He waits for him to be interested. And then the story goes on, and the whole story, Exodus 3, is Moses giving excuses on why he's not God's guy. Like, after God is like, I'm telling you who I am, you're experiencing this small miracle, I'm with you, I've revealed myself to you, Moses is like, I don't think I'm your guy. I mean, there's like 13 objections in a row. And God is patient with the objections. God is patient with the questions. God is willing to stay with him. Second Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, the thing about repentance is it requires action on our part. So the idea that God would be patient enough with us and maybe even allow suffering to continue so that we might repent, so that we might come to him is a beautiful truth, but a hard one to hold together, right? Just this week, I had two conversations with two people who had both been to jail. Both of them pinpointed that this moment was the actual beginning of their relationship with God. So the question is, should God have intervened so they did not go to jail? God is good and powerful. God is humble and God is patient. Sometimes what's easy to lose in the midst of this instant world we're in is that many good things in our life happen over time and with hardship. When you've experienced God's patience for you in real and significant ways, it changes the way you engage with patience with the rest of the world too. Our God is good. He is personal, he is humble, He is patient. He's personal to Moses. He uses his name, right? He calls to Moses specifically. He makes himself in a personal relationship. And when I think about that prayer study, I think that's the piece, right? I believe in a God, but do I believe in a personal God? A God who hears my prayers and intervenes. A God that I can speak with who actually speaks back to me. That's a very different kind of belief. And what's interesting about what God says to Moses is that when God answers with his name, remember in the story, Moses is like, he's like, I'm the God of your fathers, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac. This story's in Exodus, right? There's a whole book of the Bible before this story. God has revealed himself before this story. Like, God is a known thing before this story. So it's interesting that Moses says, well, who am I supposed to tell them that you are? Commentators would say, this is not a question of, is there a God? The question is actually, who, how am I supposed to talk about you in a way that matters? Not are you God, but what about you actually matters to the situation that we're in? As God is calling Moses to go live out his purpose, to go do what God is asking him to do, that's when he asks the question, who am I supposed to tell them that you are? And that's when God says back, Say to them that I am who I am. Now here's a mouthful, but here's a longer sentence to describe what that really is in Hebrew. I am who I am. I am truly he who exists, and I will be dynamically present then and there in the situation to which I am sending you. I know that's a big sentence. I am truly he who exists and I will be dynamically present then and there in the situation that I am sending you to. It's like this longest possible way of saying I am with you. What you need to know 
And what you need to be able to do before you go into the situation that you're in is to know that I am, that I am present, that I am here, that I am filling the space, that I am. It's like our minds can't even wrap around that idea that he's saying, I am with you right now. I will be with you where you're going. And the actual most important thing that you need to know is that I'm with you. And as humans, the most important thing that we need to know is that we have a God who says, I am with you. When God says, tell them I am who I am, he is saying, I am a God who is present, who is here. I am not a far off God who maybe hears your prayers and doesn't answer them, who maybe doesn't hear your prayers at all. I'm a God who's actually with you right now. Jesus, when he came, repeated this very same concept. And this is actually what was the, the thing that was like, people are gonna kill him now. Because Jesus, at one point in his ministry, when he was being questioned, he said before, this is in John 8, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, talking about himself, before Abraham was born, I am. He used this exact same concept of who God is. And it says, at this they picked up stones to stone him. This is in the New Testament. But Jesus slipped away. It was a huge deal because this is the specific way that God is revealing that he is God. So for Jesus, a man, to come to earth and do ministry and say to people, before Abraham was, I am, this is Jesus claiming his divinity, claiming his nature as God. It's a huge deal that Jesus repeats that. And then Jesus is actually doing it, right? Because Jesus is actually God on earth, God walking with people, God in our suffering, God in our hardship. He's showing us through Jesus that he's with us. God being with us is the most powerful part of God's nature. Think about how important being with is to you. In all of life's highest highs and lowest lows, our tendency as human beings is to want someone with us. Why do people send you pictures of their food? <laughs> because they're having such an amazing moment that they wish you were with them. Why do we try to take, we, we're at the Grand Canyon, we're like, I'm just trying to get a picture. And they're like, I can't capture how great this is. Why are we trying to get a picture? Because there's this part of us, when we have a moment, when we experience the highest of highs, we want someone with us. Anybody watch the World Track Championships? So interesting, so much drama, so awesome. But in the World Track Championships that just took place, when you watch people win, when a champion wins, they're the world champion in their event. I was watching pole vault, Mondo, world champion in his event, set a world record. First thing he did, run to the sidelines, kiss his girlfriend. What do we do in our highest highs? We want to be with. I remember I was on a, a silent retreat. I was on a, a solitude, like the first time I had spent time alone for like two days. And I was in wintergreen, I was on a hike, sitting, in the, sitting out, just looking at the mountain, and just sitting there, and a deer just comes right in front of me. And it's like this moment, and you're in this moment of beauty where you're like, oh, God is good, God is real, and he's here. I just feel like he's here with me, but I wanna tell somebody else. Like, that's how I wanna capture the highest low, highest high. And then in our lowest low, what we desire more than anything else is for someone to be with us. What is the most exquisite human pain but to be in pain and to feel alone? Pain itself is not the worst part. It's pain experienced alone. 
that actually is the most exquisite kind of pain. Here's an example of that, a very small one. Um, Dave and I were mountain biking, we were like in a mountain bike race, and some, some might say that I'm a little bit independent, some, some may say that I don't take instruction well and I'm not good at being led. I don't know who those some are, but that's out there, okay? So I'm just gonna, um, that's my disclaimer. So um, it's very possible that I might have told Dave multiple times to just bike on ahead, that I would catch up and that I was fine, when in reality I wasn't actually fine because we were on a single track like bike, and I was not comfortable and did not feel good enough at biking to be doing this, but anyway, I do it anyway. So I'm going and I'm going. I'm pretty sure I've sent him ahead multiple times, but then I hit a, a, a route and if you've ever biked where you're such a bad biker that you just start going so slow that you tip over, you, you know, bikes don't, bikes don't work without momentum. So I'm trying to go so slow over this route that I just tip over and now the bike is laying on top of me and I'm yell, screaming for Dave because I actually could have gotten up. But when you're in that moment where you're like, this is as low as it gets. <laughs> like, I don't, this is a low physically and this is a low emotionally and spiritually. And I, I just wanted him to be with, right? And that's a silly example. You probably have much stronger examples in your life. In another conversation with a group this week, hearing they're sort of talking about their unexpected seasons, talking about suffering talking about hard things and guys not resolving. Nothing was getting resolved. It was like, this is the season I'm in. This is the season I'm in and just hard, hard things. And it was so interesting because at the end of the hour, like I said, no one was there to resolve anything. We were just talking about hard things, hard seasons. And multiple people on the call said, I just feel better because I'm here. I just feel better because I learned so much from you. What was happening there? There was no doctrine. Nobody was like reading each other Bible verses. The only thing that happened was that people in their honest lows were with others. And so if God wants us to know, and the first thing that he reveals to himself very specifically in scripture is that he is with us. Do you think it's because he understands our greatest human condition and our greatest human need is that he's with us? And guess what? In our highest highs and lowest lows, there's not any person who's perfect enough to be with you. There isn't any person who can fill that spot. We experience the comfort of people, we experience the goodness of having people in our lives, but the kind of with that our hearts really need can only be filled by one. There's only one who could be so present, so powerful, so humble, so patient, so personal, that he would give us the experience of with, like we could remove that from the table. Can you imagine living your life knowing, I do not ever have to feel alone when I am with God. God allows me to not have to suffer through this particular kind of suffering. Now my life might be full of hardship. My life might be difficult. I might have a lot of questions for God. I might be angry at God. I might be not sure how I'm going to go on with how this valley feels that I am in. But the one thing that you do not have to feel is alone. The most exquisite human pain is alone. And Jesus Christ removed that from us when he took on sin on the cross. Why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Theologians would say it's because Jesus experienced the fullness of what it actually feels like to be separated from God. It was the only time that Jesus experienced the fullness of what it was to be separated from God because he took that on himself so that you and I don't have to have that. 
We think suffering's hard, we think hardship's hard. Imagine all of that without God. And so we can't, we can't like make that tension go away. And I do think we should, we should engage with the, with the tension, with the question. If God is good and powerful, why is the world the way it is? We should engage that. But there's a huge part of our faith that I think changes everything about who we are, and it is this understanding that God is with us. Matthew 28, when Jesus said, this is what I'm gonna go have you do, this is called the Great Commission. This is after Jesus has done the work on the cross, he's been resurrected, he's gonna ascend to heaven, and he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and what, surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Acts 1.8, he says, you will be my witnesses. What do we do with the fact that God is with? How does that affect us? What it means is that the most important thing we do is experience God. The most important thing we can do as human beings is, is experience God and then bear witness to experiencing God. A witness, like an eyewitness, is just someone who says, this is what I've seen, this is what I saw, this is what, it, what I heard, this is how it happened, and that's what we're called to as believers, is actually to be able to have an experience with God that is such an experience of God being with us that we're able to talk to others about it, that we're able to, to manifest that in our lives. So yeah, understanding that God is with us is incredibly powerful for the life that we live. Moses was just a guy who was curious. The first thing Moses was was curious. He was willing to go over and be like, what is this? So the first question I have is, are you curious? Are you curious about God? So I'm like, oh no, I don't spend time with God, I'm too busy. I would say if you're too busy, then you're not curious. The second thing that we know about Moses is that he was obedient. He was reluctantly obedient, <laughs> but he was obedient. He actually did what God told him to do. And he had a lot of objections, and it took him a long time, and he needed help, but he still was obedient. So my next question for you is, if you're not experiencing God in this way, are you being obedient? Did he, did he ask you to do something that you haven't done? Because sometimes we feel like we don't know where God's presence is because he's back there waiting for us to do the thing that he asked us to do. And this is the thing, is that when God asks us to do something, he's not, he didn't leave you. It's just he's waiting there for you. Outside of time, he's waiting there for you. If you know that you need to forgive somebody and you haven't done it, God's like, I'm still there. I'm, I'm ready for that. I'm gonna help you with that. I'm gonna be there in that with you. But we're like, oh God, where are you? God's like, I'm there where we last talked about what needed to happen next. If God's asking you to change a pattern in your life, you're like, oh, I'm not feeling God. I don't sense his presence. Well, he's probably there waiting for you. He's everywhere, but he's there. Because being obedient is part of the way that we begin to experience God more and more. And a lot of times we're like, oh God, are you calling me to like start an international nonprofit, Lord? Are you calling me out of my career? I mean, he might be. But he, like, he might be calling you to be nicer to your kids. He, he might be calling you to send a text to your dad. And a lot of times we're like, Lord, where are you? I'm ready, where's my big burning bush? He's like, it's really small and it's right here and it's in your daily life. And if you're not gonna do that thing, you're not gonna see that thing. So we gotta see the thing. He doesn't burn the whole mountain down. He just got the little thing. And he's like, hey, how are you doing on walking in the way of love? Because that's what it means to walk with me. I'm giving you multiple opportunities every single day 
to be patient, to be kind, to need me. That's at the end of the day what it's about. If we're too busy for God, then you're not desperate enough. And if you want to be desperate, try to do what God has asked you to do. Because then you're going to be like, oh, I can't do this without God. I better, I better figure out how to get with him. Because this isn't working. Moses is curious. Moses is obedient. And the last thing is, is Moses is honest. Moses is like, I can't do this. Lord, you got the wrong guy. Like, no, I'm, and I cannot do this alone. I mean, so much honesty. So I'm curious for you right now, if you think about those three responses to the burning bush, to the little ways that God gets our attention, to the ways that God wants to show us his glory, where do you need to find yourself? Do you need to be more curious? Do you know right now you just have a conviction where you're like, I need to be more obedient. God, give me the strength to follow you. There might be some repentance there just to confess. Or do you need to be more honest? To be open to say, hey God, I, I want to experience you, but this is honestly how I'm doing. I'm scared, I'm ashamed, I'm lonely, I'm tired, whatever. But to bring that kind of honesty to God, because what we see him do with Moses is he meets him there. He meets him there again and again and again. He doesn't say, hey Moses, why don't you go get your act together and then come back to this conversation? No, he's like in it with us. This is the goodness of God. So as we take a minute to think, as we wrap up today, I leave you with that question to reflect on. Is God asking you, are you being more curious? Do you need to be more curious? Is there a place of obedience in your life right now? Do you need to be honest with God? Let's take a minute. Father, you tell us that if we seek you, we will find you, if we seek you with our whole heart. God, we confess that it's just hard for us to bring our whole heart to you, whether because we're, we're just sort of apathetic to it or we're just unsure, or we've just gotten in some ruts that we just feel like, okay, God, I'm going to give you half my heart. I'm going to give you my Sunday morning heart, but I don't, I don't know how to engage with you elsewhere. God, whatever that prayer is, Lord, we do pray that we would be people who, even in these last few minutes, that you would give us the attention and the passion to bring our whole hearts to you where we can experience the fullness of your goodness this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.